Welcome to the Neck Now podcast, presented by the New England Center for Children. Today's episode features a lab discussion with Jason Barrett, NECC's clinical director. He's also a Western New England University faculty member who teaches courses in the treatment of severe problem behavior, verbal behavior, and quantitative modeling. Jason is joined by Dave Palmer, a professor emeritus at Smith College and a fellow Western New England University faculty member. Dave teaches an advanced verbal behavior course in the WNU Behavior Analysis Doctoral Program and is a world-renowned expert on B.F. Skinner, verbal behavior, and behavior analytic theory. Dave and Jason discuss a recent article that proposes reconceptualizing the motivating operation concept as well as other topics. Thank you to Dave for coming on. So this is uh, the Bray Lab special topics discussion. I'm Jason Bray. Um, we are a research lab affiliated with Western New England University. I'm, I'm the clinical director of the New England Center for Children. Um, we're fortunate to have Dave Palmer with us. Dave is Professor Emeritus at Smith College and also an instructor in the Western New England program. Hi, Dave. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Dave's wearing a tie today. Mm-hmm. He's, got a, he's got a suit on. You can't see him, but he does. He's looking dapper. Looking Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the tie the has... Your, it's your daughter's tie, right? She gave that to it, you? It is. It's my daughter's tie, and uh, it has matryoshka dolls on it. I don't know if you can see them all oh, lined up. Those are those are the ones that have dolls inside them, Yep. right? Like It's like recursion. It's mm-hmm. like a doll inside a doll. Exactly. Say that again. What are those called? What's the name for that? Matryoshka, I believe, is how it's pronounced. Matryoshka. Mm-hmm. Although I could be leaving out a syllable, I... Is is this the daughter that was? She had spent some time in Kazakhstan. Is that yeah? She uh, she spent a semester in Russia and uh, two years in Kazakhstan, and mm. has been over there in that neck of the woods a few other times. Yeah, great, good. So we're the our, our topic for discussion today is um, a paper by Edwards et al. published um, in twenty nineteen. And the, the topic is a, a reconceptualization of the concept of the motivating operation. Um, and we, so just upfront, I wanna say a couple of things about this type of work. We've, for, for this lab group, I've mentioned this to you before. Um, this type of paper is, a, a, in my opinion, the best way to do a review paper. If you are in a PhD program, part of your requirements for graduation typically are writing some kind of review or area paper of literature. And it's it's one thing to summarize the most recent research on whatever for the last X number of years. And that's fine. And that, that can save a reader some time. So instead of the reader having to go back and look through all that themselves, they can just read your review paper and get up to speed. But they also, they have sort of um, kind of a, I don't know if expiration date is right, but then it's like, you got to write another one in another 10 years. And then how many review papers is somebody going to read? You know, are you going to go back through time to read every review paper of every decade on whatever the topic is? Um, they, this sort of work, so the, the paper that we're reading today, it, it is challenging us to think about a fundamental behavioral concept differently. And I, I think that's a, it's a great expenditure of effort. Um, and the, the Michael papers that we've discussed and, and um, read previously on the concepts of motivating operations are right along those lines. Uh, they, they, they helped our field 
um, identify and properly categorize functional relations that we may have otherwise missed or have um, responded to ineffectively. So the, those uh, more effective categorizations allow us to more effectively interact with our subject matter. And so those are important. And I also think it's, um, if there's going to be evolution in what we know about behavior evolution or technology that's going to require evolution in the, the, um, the underlining theoretical constructs that we've identified. And that if there's going to be evolution, there has to be variability. We, we need to take some different perspectives and look through some different lenses. And even if, even if at the end of the day, you decide, I'm, I'm not sure that this is buying us enough for us to, to um, adopt this new perspective going forward, you gotta keep trying that. It's, it's necessary for us to, to do that. Um, we, we started, part of what I think inspired me anyway to, to think about going down this path was the fact that um, Jack passed away um, last year. And so we've been appreciating some of his work and, um, you know, that Howie Racklin also recently passed away and, and somebody else who's, who gave us a different perspective and a different way to look at things. Um, and there's the, um, Billy Baum's doing that and Tim Shahan's doing that. It, there's, it, there, there are people that, that are diving into some of this theory work, just taking a different angle. And again, uh, I have a lot of respect for that and taking the time to do that. So kudos to, to these authors for, um, for going out there and putting this work together and bringing it to us. Uh, we're, we're going to discuss it. I don't, you know, we haven't, I haven't talked to Dave or the, the lab group about how we feel about this yet or all of the reactions that we're having to it. I think we'll get together and find out what we have to say. The, our thought is then subsequently to read that there's a series of replies. So I think we'll go through those and that those are always illuminating. And then there's a, the, um, the ultimate reply to the replies that they the authors who initially put the thing together and we'll take a look at that too. So we'll, we'll probably be on this topic for a few weeks. Okay. So we, uh, we had the, the lab group put together some um, questions that they had or, or things to think about. Um, the, I'll, I'll do a little bit of overview and then I'll let Dave correct me if I've gotten anything wrong about the, the interpretation that I'm, that I'm understanding the authors to make. So there, there are, my read was a couple of main thrusts of this paper. One was um, to the, the, well, let's, let's take the, the status quo, the prior, the concept of the motivating operation. We've got an event that has two effects. There are two outcomes from this operation. So one is a, a change in the efficacy of a, reinforcing stimulus. We're gonna, we'll stick to reinforcement for this discussion without getting into punishment, but you get the same sort of thing there. And the, the other effect outcome of the operation is that it increases the probability of behavior that is characteristically maintained by this reinforcement, okay? So we've got increase the EO, talk about EOs here, increases the effects of some reinforcing consequence as a reinforcement for the effects of some stimulus as a reinforcer and increases the likelihood of behavior that is characteristically maintained by that reinforcer, the AO would do the other thing. So we, there we would have a decrease in the effects of some consequences as a reinforcer and a decrease in the likelihood of behavior that characteristically maintains that reinforcer. One, one of the 
the positions that these authors take is the uh, they lay out the the notion that um, perhaps the effect of the motivating operation is um, rather than and um, an effect the antecedent effect. Every, they're on board with the consequent effect. I didn't, Dave. Is that your read? I mean, it seemed like at least with regard to unconditioned EOs, motivating operations. I didn't see any beef with the the consequent effect. Right. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. And the, so the idea is that from an antecedent perspective, they they perhaps they operate by um, modulating the effect of discriminative stimulus control. That seemed to be the a major argument that they're bringing. And we should talk about that because that's. It's that's tr tricky to sort of disentangle, or it could be. Um, the other, the other major part of the paper was toward the end. There's a um, sort of a, a broad dismissal of the concepts of conditioned motivating operation, and I, and I don't, I'm, I'm I don't know. I, 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 I wasn't sure that the the first thing necessarily implies the second thing. So if you're if you're going to make the argument that perhaps the effect of the mo is um, rather than a an effect on behavior in the absence of discriminative stimulus control or separate from, I guess independent from discriminative stimulus control, it's a, a modulation of the effects of discriminative stimuli. That seems to be one thing, and I it it didn't seem to me like that would um, necessitate that you dismiss with the concepts of, of condition motivating operations. Dave, what did I miss? Did you, what do you think? So uh, you hit it right in the head. I, the, the nail that is, um, that's exactly what I, what I got away from it, took away from it. Um, uh, the, um, uh, last week when we were talking about this, I, uh, I raised the possibility, I hadn't read the Edwards et al paper at the, at the time. And, and I had, uh, I raised the possibility that the evocative effect of motivating operations might be mediated by discriminative stimuli. That is, that, that what the motivating operation does is to potentiate discriminative stimuli. And this is exactly what Edwards and the others are, are, um, are saying. So, so uh, uh, I was, you know, I was in accord with that, except that I, I was raising it as a question, not as a fact. That is, I I wondered whether. I, I guess I was I was wondering how the discriminative stimulus um, wove into Jack's idea that uh, motivating operations are uh, have evocative effects. Um, but after reading the Edwards paper, they're fairly territorial about it. They're saying that the motivating operation effect is by way of discriminative stimuli and nothing else. Right. And I, uh, that's where I'm not ready to leap on board. I mean, it may be true, um, but the thing that we, we sort of toyed with last week was the question whether, let's say deprivation, in the absence of a conspicuous discriminative stimulus might occasion, um, behave, might strengthen behavior with respect to that motivating operation. So the, the, uh, the thought experiment I have is that you're, you're transported to Mars and in Mars, uh, up is down and left is right. And, and uh, uh, you don't know where you are. Uh, colors are all weird. And there's no, there's nothing familiar about the environment you're, you're thrown into. But as you're 
wandering around Mars, you're getting thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. Um, is it not implausible that you would say, damn, I wish I had some water. Um, and yet there's no discriminative stimulus that is correlated with water or with the receipt of water. So um, now if that were true, it would, I believe be in my interpretation is that it would be in contradiction to the Edwards paper. Um, that yeah. they're, tr that, yeah. Right. So they're, they're trying to channel all of the motivating function yeah. through the avenue of discriminative stimuli. Yeah. Do, do you, so I think this is asking what I think is a, a really important question here. Um, how, how it, it, what does it mean to say um, that the effect of a motivating operation is it's via its modulation of the effect of discriminative stimulus control? And is is that is there is there any how do we how would we disentangle that? Is there um, you know does that mean anything that is distinct from saying that the motivating operation one of the effects is that it changes the likelihood of behavior that has this characteristic consequence? I, because you, for you to change the definition, I, it seems to me like there would have to be a reason to, like there's some circumstances under which you can act more effectively by changing that. But I, I had a hard time coming up with the experiments. So I, so I, can, I can walk through like a couple that I came up with because I'm trying to think about, give me then a two-term contingency. That was sort of my thought. So, the, so discrimination arises from exposure of behavior to a three-term contingency. So then what I'm looking for is, okay, fine, give me a two-term contingency and let's, if in that circumstance, we shouldn't be seeing the exertion of discriminative stimulus control. And in that circumstance, do we see the effect of modulation of motivating operations on the likelihood of behavior as an antecedent? And that's, this is also just for everybody to think about. You, you gotta, if you're talking about the antecedent effect, that has to be distinct from the consequence effect. We, we would know that, that for, the presence of an EO, given an EO, the reinforcer is going to hit harder. It's going to be a more effective stimulus. It's going to have a greater reinforcing effect. And so this is, we want to say separate from that, do, do, can we see an evocative? And so Dave, you and I talked about this, or we at least sort of brushed this topic previously. If, if you were to say, Imagine you've got a, a rat in a chamber and it's got lever pressing that's that's reinforced on a uh, on a VI schedule, and we we modify the the um, food deprivation for the rat, right? We we would expect in I I think under in sessions in which there's been a greater amount of food deprivation. Um, prior to the delivery of the first reinforcer and increase the likelihood of behavior in comparison to sessions in which there was say pre-session feeding, right? So I feel like we would agree with that, wouldn't mm -hmm. we? People seem on board with that idea. Well, if it's happening before the first reinforcer delivery, you can't say that the increased response rate is an outcome of the delivery of that reinforcer, right? It's just a, we're talking about a simple VI. So we haven't, at least with regard to the rat's experience in that chamber, there there's, the rat has not experienced a three-term contingency. It's a two-term, just lever pressing resulting in access to the food. And so, so uh, for me, I find that to be a pretty um, compelling argument for the effect of motivating operations as an antecedent, um, not requiring some modulation of descriptive stimulus control effects, right? Dave, how do you, what do you, how, how do you feel about that? Uh, I, I need to 
go through your example again because I, um, I, I, I guess I was assuming you were headed in one direction and you went in a different. Uh, so the um, the very first trial, the rat has never received food in this context for pressing the lever. So we're, um, in, in my example, we're, there has been. So this oh, there the has been. experienced the the VI. So you've got you know imagine you got a VI one minute or whatever. So, okay. so the rats experience that it has and behaviors at steady state after that. Okay. And then you're the, the, the I'm sort of highlighting the the initial responding during sessions prior to the delivery of food to be indicative of uh, the effect of the motivating operation as an antecedent. So so on the the, the the very first trial when you drop the rat in the chamber after having had this experience. Yep. Um, now the rat is more deprived than usual, yeah. uh, and you see a um, heightened effect. response rate up front. Right. Okay, and and so you're saying that that suggests. Um, tell tell me again what that suggests. Yeah. So you got some. So there's going to be some number of of lever presses that take place prior to the delivery of reinforcement. Mm -hmm. So if we if we take if we just take the very beginning of the session, the, mm -hmm. the prior to the first delivery agreement, and, we, and imagine you plot those data and you've got this this stratification of response rates, and imagine it lines up with the amount of deprivation of that the rat has experienced. Mm -hmm. Okay, so more deprivation, higher response rate, less deprivation. Yeah, that to me seems like a a, a compelling demonstration of the effect of the motivating operation as an antecedent in changing the, the probability of behavior um, in, in the absence of a three-term contingency. So uh, that, Okay. That yes, I, I understand now what you're saying. So, so uh, I guess uh, the, the, the retort might be that the, um, the red has, the, the, the lever has acquired discriminative properties as a result of prior training, even though it's never been a three, never has been an explicit three-term contingency there. Um, it, it's, it's only when the rat presses the, only when the rat is, in, is touching and chewing on the lever that, that food follows. In other words, there is sort of incidental contingencies sure. built into the prior things that, that make um, antecedents acquire control over the behavior that were yeah. not scheduled. So yeah. that would be the possible response to your to your right. point right yeah so so this um for uh, one of the things that i i like about dave's um interpretations is that he he's um tends to tends toward uh, molecular accounts of what's happening and mm -hmm. i often if if there is a lack of order at a more molar level. Sometimes you can uh, address that and account for it at a more molecular level. So, if, so this, and I, I think that's an excellent argument, and I, I, I think that makes sense. So, it, so the idea here, gang, is that the 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 muscle movement of the rat doing the thing that is a depression of a lever, the rat can do that without the lever. The rat could stand off on its hind legs and do this push down. It could have, it could be, it could just do that. But you behavior conforms such that the rat approaches the lever, the rat rears up and puts paws on the lever and then engages in the, the press, right? And and I think you you have to, I, I think you have to say that the, the stimuli that the rat is experiencing, that that behavior is not uncontrolled, that, that the, the rat's behavior is conformed to this, the presence of the lever 
and the chamber um, being discriminative for the availability of food given that action, right? So people get that idea. So that, and I, I, I think that's important for this discussion. So now, now what you're saying, and this is now things get even trickier because now what you're saying is even though in the, the context of your experiment in which you carved out some period of time in which you are only operating a two term contingency, it's it, the, the, um, the, it's very difficult to try to, to um, extract the existence of other naturally occurring contingencies from the rat's experience. So even though you only put together a two-term contingency, the rat has experienced the fact that if it does the same motion, sitting in its home chamber, food doesn't happen, right? And, and again, from a very molecular perspective, even things like the, the, the walking toward the lever, if, if anybody's done any hand shaping, I, I spent a lot of time with a pigeon just trying to get the pigeon to, to like walk to the key. Like that's, that, those stimuli that are associated with approaching the manipulandum, the, I mean, that's an outcome of experience. And I, I think you would have to, you'd have to assume that there is the exertion of discriminative control that, that plays a role in those, those responses that you don't even see. I mean, you see lever pressing, but the, the th things like approaching the lever have to happen before the lever press can occur. So, so then what? So then we're saying, even then, you have but, the, the idea that the, the motivating operation, the effect would be uh, perhaps, like theoretically could be anyway, an, an enhancement of the discriminative control that is exerted by those stimuli. And I, and I wanna, again, I wanna lay this out for people because the way that I was thinking about it, I think is two different ways. So one, we, um, this our lab group does some some mathematical modeling and quantitative analysis, and I uh, sometimes for me that helps clarify what I'm considering in terms of the role that these variables play. Is it that there's there there is discriminative stimulus control, and so if you imagine a term y behavior equals is a function of, and then there's a term for discriminative stimulus control, and then plus the effect of motivating operation that is certainly the case that that both can play a role is it is it that they both they they're independent the, the one acts on its own and it's it adds to or subtracts from the effect of the other or is it the case that it is a is it like a multiplier is it that the, there is just discriminative stimulus control and that there's um, a concatenation such that the mo directly impacts the role of the discriminative stimulus control, but does does not have an effect independent of that, if that if that sort of makes sense to people. That this is what we're trying to get at. And I yeah that, that, that that's right. That's the way I see the Edwards uh, paper arguing. Uh, and, and that's why I mentioned going to Mars to eliminate the uh, any contribution of those sort of incidental Maybe uh, that's hard though. It's because you you know <laughs> yeah. You're still walking around. You're, the, it's it, if you're in Mars in space and you're busy suffocating and freezing. I mean, you know, you're doing different stuff, I guess. But it's it, and then you're talking to yourself. You know, yeah. we and that's tricky because then you're your own mm -hmm. audience. And I think, but so I, here's another one that I came up with, and this is this is try to figure this out. You let's talk about you as your own audience right you um you how much how much math do you do for fun like just for fun you know what i mean like if somebody if if 
it, it, so um, I don't do a lot, just independently. In turn, so, but if somebody asks me if I've got to figure something out, so if some, if you got to figure out like, oh, what's a what's um, 156 divided by 12? You know, you if somebody asks you that, well, then you might start talking to yourself. So you might say, well, let's see. So, oh, well, 12 times 12 is 144. And then if you add another 12, now you're at 156. So that would be 12 and then plus one, 13. So that would be 12 times 13. So I just do all this talking to myself, right? They, what is the question? When somebody asks you the question, what's, what is, what's 156 by 12? Um, that, that produced a bunch of problem solving, right? But, but my, what I would say is that you could, if we take the section of the thing that I did, the problem solving part, my ability to do that is no more present given the question than it is given the absence of the question. I don't know if, I don't know if that, that makes sense to people. They, they, my ability to do that, this is like in the, I wanna, we'll get back to this, but like Michael's slot and screw example, when the, the electrician encounters a panel with a slotted screw and, and she turns to her assistant and says, could you hand me the flathead screwdriver? The slotted screw does not make, it doesn't, it isn't associated with the screwdriver being any more available than it is otherwise, right? And so if we're talking about discriminative stimulus control, then we're talking about the, the availability of some consequence for response. And when I talk to myself, I hear myself no matter what, like the, so this is, this is why I wanted to bring the, this up. So if there's, what if we're thinking about automatic reinforcement or, or reinforcement that is, it is generated by the stimuli anyway are generated by your action. And it seems to me like those stimuli are only established as reinforcing under certain circumstances. So the, the, the conclusion coming to the answer to the question, what is 156 divided by 12, that's only established as reinforcing given the question. The question doesn't make it any more likely that I can answer it. It just makes the answer reinforcing. Mm -hmm. It establishes the answer as reinforcing. Right. So, so how do we, I don't know, Dave, do you have thoughts about that? Does that, does that get us anywhere? I'm, the reason why I'm thinking about like self-produced stimulation is then it seems to me like you can always do that. I'm not sure that there is, is there, I'm not sure if there's like an S Delta thing for that or what, what that would look like. Yeah. I, I think you're right about that. So, so even if we go to Mars, we haven't really, uh, we haven't resolved the problem by moving to an environment where there's no uh, external, no familiar external, uh, uh, stimuli. So, yeah. so you're right about that. Um, but, uh, um, I, I guess my, my reservations about the Edwards et al paper is I don't see that they have ruled out that role of mm. motivating operations yeah. sort of directly on behavior. Right. Um, the, uh, just, just to, if the audience to this is not, doesn't know what we're talking about, the, one of their arguments was that a motivating operation in the presence of um, of a particular discriminative stimulus will strengthen the behavior appropriate to that discriminative stimulus. But if there's a second discriminative stimulus um, uh, and the first is absent, you'll see a response appropriate to that second discriminative stimulus. So if you have to, to if to get water, you, you uh, have to, uh, uh, turn on a tap in the presence of a tap or ask your mother in the case of you're not near the tap. Um, the, uh, the particular response appropriate to that 
discriminative stimulus is the one that's going to show up, not the other response. So the, right. their point is that you don't just get you don't just get a kind of fire hose of behavior appropriate to some MO. You get behavior that's finely tuned to the environment. And I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. So the issue is, is really the one you raised earlier. Is it a is it some kind of multiplier of the SD effect or right. is it a more general effect uh, involving multiple mm -hmm. multiple control? So let's, I'm gonna, let's talk about this a little bit because they, they dedicate some space to um, making the argument that, that it, I mean, the way that I read it was that there's, and also there's discriminative stimulus control. So, so Dave, like you were saying that the, the, the current present discriminative stimuli will occasion one response versus another. And that, yeah. and that if, we, if we ignore that, then the concept of motivating operation doesn't have much use. But, but who, it is, I didn't think anybody was suggesting we ignore that. Do, you know, it, it always seemed to me like we, we have, there's control by motivating operations and also control by discriminative stimuli. Yes. Uh, it, I wonder if this is a, an appropriate time for me to quote Jack Michael on this because uh, I, uh, I went back to Jack's 1993 paper on the establishing operation. And that paper was a target paper for a number of responses. And um, uh, McDevitt and, and Fantino hmm. raised this very same discriminative stimulus interpretation. And Jack responded to all the commentaries and he said, yes, indeed. And this is, uh, let me quote him. Wait, Dave, the 93 paper has commentaries? Yes. Why did, all right. I'm, now I'm mad at myself because I, I feel like I should know that. I well, didn't. I didn't realize it either until I went back and uh, the Edwards paper alluded to yeah. McDevitt, McDevitt and Fantino. Oh, so I went back and looked up McDevitt and Fantino and, and by Jove, it was, it was mixed in there with comments by Hank Schlinger and uh, oh. Bruce Hesse and a number of others um, and McDevitt and, and Fantino and, and then Jack's responses to them. Um, and I've got a quote here from Jack's paper. I need to uh, go to get out of full screen here. Um, damn, uh, sorry for cursing, but technology. I can't seem to uh, exit full screen without it. It immediately flashes back to gallery view. Um, Um, look, look for the go. Let's, let's walk Dave through the, yeah, you can have to do something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Go, if you're out of full screen, just go down to the bottom and, um, look for a word, whatever you popped your notes into. Um, okay. I, I just, I, but I can't, I can't get out of the, um, uh, zoom thing. I was out of it. Oh, exit full mm. screen. Okay. See, it flashes immediately back. Mm. Uh, to this, this is embarrassing because I I'm gonna get you an assistant. I had uh, I had this all practiced before. I'm yeah, I'm on the edge of my seat about this. <laughs> okay. I can't believe these papers exist. It's like you ever it's like you start reading something and then you start like, oh they cited this thing and you start reading that and it's like a yeah. Can you uh, can you enable share screen so I can share my screen? I can. There you go. Okay. And now let's see. 
Um, the glasses are coming up. Yeah. Okay. There it is. Share. Mm -hmm. Okay. Jack uh, says, in other words, uh, motivating operations, it motivating operation evokes any behavior that has been followed by food reinforcement. This mm -hmm. evocative effect is probably best thought of as a, the direct result, or sorry, the result of a direct effect of the EO on such behavior, mm -hmm. the motivating operation on such behavior. Yep. B, and this is the crucial one, an increase in the evocative effectiveness of all SDs for behavior that has been followed by food reinforcement. Right. And C, and this is one we haven't talked about, an increase in the frequency of behavior that has been followed by conditioned reinforcers whose effectiveness depends on food deprivation. Right. Um, and uh, I, my, my footnote to myself is that Edwards et al. seem to be, be focusing on the second yeah, of B. those three things. Yeah, I think they mentioned C also, but B is definitely a focus of what they're doing. Okay, so, mm -hmm. um, so Jack was, um, uh, one of the nice things about Jack's response to the, to the, um, to the rejoinders to his article mm -hmm. was how flexible he was. Yep. Um, the, in the McDivitt and, and um, Fantino paper, Jack said, by golly, you're right. I need to incorporate this, um, this other little epicycle to my, to my uh, theory. And in, future, in the future, I will do so, yep. uh, acknowledging the, the possible contributions of these other right. variables. So he was uh, quite um, empirical about it, uh, yep. considering it to be a, a work in progress. Yeah. I, I'm still, you know, it's part of, part of what I'm, what I am wrestling with is just in terms of operations and outcomes, what we're talking about here. And if it, it it's, I'm not sure that I'm changing anything like under the, my, my baseline position about motivating operations, what it would be that they, I, I do this thing. There's some event that I, I enact and I get a change in the, the probability behavior that has characteristically been maintained by access to this thing. I still get that, right? Like what's, is, yes. is there, a, is there a, a difference if that, if that is necessarily tied to established discriminative control? I don't think so. I, I, I well, I, I guess it's a question of, from a pragmatic point of view, no, it's, it, 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 it doesn't matter from a pragmatic point of view. I guess the question is, um, does, does a motivating operation have an effect in the absence of discriminative control? And Edwards is, and et al are saying, we don't think so. Well, let, let, me, let me ask, so riddle me this, is can you have behavior that is in the absence of discriminative control? Well, that's, uh, that's a very good question. and. Uh, one of the theses of the Donahoe and Palmer textbook is that the unit of analysis is the environment behavior relationship. Right. So it's um, uh, reinforcement always entails some strengthening of behavior in the context in which that reinforcement occurred. Yep. Uh, and that if that context has a conspicuous lever or, or person or, or flashing light, mm -hmm. um, the, the, those salient stimuli will, will probably hog control, but in the absence of uh, all other things being equal, we should expect stimulus control by all ambient stimuli 
at the moment of reinforcement right. to be equally, well, not maybe not equally, but, but to all be candidates for um, having an evocative effect in the future when those stimuli are, are yeah. present. Yeah. I, I mean, so that, that makes sense to me. And part of where I'm going then is if, if there's no such thing as behavior, like a, and let me say this, a, a, um, a response class, an established response class. Okay. So we've got the, the, I thought a little bit about how sh something like shaping plays a role here. And the issue with shaping that I ran into, and I was sort of at least walking through some thought experiments about this, is that you don't, the response is, the response class is not yet established. And if you, if you had more or less of some motivating operation, some EO or AO, obviously that, but that would just be the, you could just point to the consequence effect. So if the EO made the consequence more reinforced ing, then it may be that the shaping happens faster, or you know, behavior comes under control more rapidly. So there's there's that part of it, right? And so for so then it made me wonder, in terms of established response classes, I don't I can't think of a good example of an established response class then that 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 would be completely in the absence of discriminative stimulus control. Unless the the best I could come up with was this talking to yourself thing, because your your availability as a listener responding to your own verbal behavior is something that is always there. Mm -hmm. That was that was the best thing that I could come. Up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Another, you know, another part of this. Let me do another one for you, and I want to hear what you have to say about this one. The other, another circumstance that I was kicking around is, um, it, it just escapement gender fine. So, so the 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 author is pretty rapidly um, dismissed with the idea of um, these reflexive condition motivating operations. Uh, but but let's. Well, I want to talk about that, but let's. Let's say we've got a, a rat pressing a lever that escapes shock. So we have, we have negative reinforcement. That's escape response, right? The, the, the EO is only present when the shock is there, right? The shock and, and Jack makes, um, uh, I think uh, in the 82 paper, the case that the, the shock doesn't differentially signal its own, the, the availability of its own removal. Right, so the, the, we wouldn't interpret the the, um, the the fact that the shock produces behavior as a discriminative stimulus control phenomenon. You you could you could have like one tone in the presence of which the shock is removed, contingent on a lower press, and another tone in the presence of which it's not. And then if you saw discriminator responding, the tone would be an SD, but the shock is still an EO. Right? Is, does that how does that play a role in here? If, if is there some way that we would consider the, the shock to, to be not an independent effect, that it's just um, potentiating the role of some discriminative stimulus? I don't have a ready answer to that, Jason. The, 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 the reason, well, one reason, there, there are probably many reasons, but one reason is that when, when Jack um, talks about his reflexive EOs, um, I, I kind of stopped listening because <laughs> I find those those avoidance experiments kind of distasteful, and so I oh. so I, once I see the point, I I, I kind mm -hmm. of go on without without going back and saying uh, trying to 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 sure. um, tease out. But, but the, the way you summarize it is exactly as I understand it is exactly Jack's point. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Uh, 
I, I remember that uh, Edwards et al. Were, were not in favor of giving that a special name, a reflexive. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, the, the, they sort of wrote that this is that avoidance and escape responding is a known thing, but it didn't, that, didn't, that doesn't interpret the role of the stimulator that yeah. they're having on behavior. Right. Well, unfortunately, I don't, I don't have any, uh, any particular, I don't have any discriminative responses mm. uh, at this point. So, yeah, well, right. So, so that's, I mean, this is, this is a point for keeping the concept the way it was, I think, if we can, yeah. if it's that's a circumstance under which we can't see how this would be the case. And if, if we would assume that it must be, then we would say, we've got to have an SD, you know, and, and think about practically what that means for your, your behavior analytic action. It would mean that if you're going to, if you want to make use of motivating operations, you would always go about trying to get discriminative control first, you know? If I want to, I want to sort of overview for for people some of the landscape of the the discussion that I think matters for this um, specific to the the construction of response classes. So there, there we we briefly mentioned that there's some segment of the paper that in which the there's defense the idea that both discriminative symbols control and motivating operations can happen both can can impact responding and that, that I I take certainly as being the case. Um, we, we had some questions from students about some implications for Skinner's taxonomy of verbal behavior and what is the, the notion of, of multiple control came up. And so I wanna sort of talk about these things. They've, one thing that I, I wanna lay out, my understanding of the, the generation of an operant class is that the, the arrangement of characteristic reinforcement brings responding under control of the motivating operation for that reinforcement. And that this, this conceptualization is necessary for Skinner's distinction of the manned versus other response classes. So the, the, the way in which a manned would be generated is that there is a characteristic reinforcement that is put in place for some response topography and that, that brings that topography into a response class such that when the, the O for that reinforcer is present, um, that that response would occur. And it's not, it isn't that it just occurs in a willy-nilly uncontrolled fashion. Skinner, Skinner is, doesn't ever during verbal behavior make the position that there is no discriminative stimulus control that is exerted over mandic. So there's, there, there's some allusion to that thought in the Edwards paper, but that's, that, I don't think that's right. It, Skinner is very upfront about um, audience control. There's, there's sections on, um, um, the, there's particular discussion of the role that discriminative stimuli may play on the exertion of control over man. So the way that I've always thought about that is that with regard to the man, you have a response that, that is via exposure to characteristic reinforcement brought under control of motivating operations and also like all behavior is sensitive to discriminative stimulus control. Whereas other verbal operands, the way that they are defined in Skinner's analysis, like the, you know, the tact is an obvious example, but also all of the verbal responses under descriptive control of verbal stimuli. The idea is that those, we might free them from the effect of motivating operations by using varied or generalized reinforcement, mm -hmm. right? So just to, just to kind of like lay that out for people, right? And Dave, did I get that? Does that, does that yeah. coincide yeah. with your read of that? Yes, that, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the notion of multiple control is, 
is really central to Skinner's analysis. Uh, in chapter, he opens chapter nine by saying, uh, you know, gazing back at the various uh, elementary operant classes, um, we see that um, a uh, response uh, is, is um, how did he put it? Uh, it, it's 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 at least typically under multiple control, if not always under multiple control. Yeah. Um, I think it would be safer to say that there are contingencies in which one variable is dominant to mm. the point where other variables are right. trivial. Yeah. So if you're if you haven't eaten in six months, uh, the mo is going to be more more important than. Uh, but you'll still see discriminant symptom control. I yes. Mean, you, you know, so, that, so you're gonna you you might be talking to yourself about food more often, but certainly <laughs> in the presence of the person, you're gonna be talking to that person, given the relevant language that are you know all the stimuli that are associated with that, etc. So, so, yeah, so I want to I want to hear your thoughts about the the notion of multiple control because it's that's I don't know, I, I I again I I wonder given um. Given a background in which these variables always exert control, is there some situation in which we don't have multiple control? Is that would we say of of Skinner's breakdown in uh, different types of verbal operants? Since the way that he lays it out, the the man is the one that for which there's control by motivating operations, and the others, at least, and this is the way that I try to teach it to to my class. Um, when we're talking about things like texts or intervals or echoics or textuals, they, although uh, within the, the boundaries of generality for which these responses typically occur, they're, they're, they, um, there is no, um, we don't see them diminish in probability as a function of abolishing operations. So, the, and this is the sort of where Skinner leans on the notion of generalized reinforcement that it's sufficiently supported by a variety of other reinforces such that the occurrence of abolishing operations is not going to suppress these responses. You know? so, so that's sort of where, where I try to lay it out. But even then, there's this, you're still relying on the, the idea that the, the, um, the consequences then are, they, there are sufficient EOs present, right? Like it's, it, isn't, it, isn't that, it isn't that though, a, um, a, answering if somebody asks you what your name is, it isn't that that is under some particular control of a specific EO, right? It's not like you only, you're only doing that when you are food deprived or water deprived. Mm -hmm. So, so I don't, I don't know if you've thought about this day, but it, it, it made me sort of the discussion of multiple control made me take another look at that concept. And I, it, I absolutely seems apparent to me that you have, and would have motivating operation control being exerted and also discriminative stimulus control being exerted. But it made me wonder if you ever don't. And, and maybe at least when I was sort of kicking it around, those, those circumstances in which perhaps there are other verbal operants in which you, the, there's not a specific EO that is particularly evoking this response. Uh, well, I... Um... In the discussion of the tact, he, he, he makes the, an explicit point of trying to free the tact from 
the control by a particular EO right. um, and so that the tech becomes essentially pure. Yep. Um, so so you're, you're, you're under the control of the property of the object or event, uh, irrespective of any motivating variables. Right. And uh, so, uh, yep. but, but what, what I think what you're saying is that there's always some, that there's some kind of motivation for responding at all, right? Well, here, I guess here's what I'm, here's what I'm trying to say. Um, if in, in my experience, um, behavior conforms to contingencies such that if there's a characteristic reinforcement, given NEO for that reinforcer, uh, a way to think about the response that you can expect to see is responses that have most probably resulted in that, most quickly resulted in that, but mm-hmm. produce that reinforcer with the least amount of effort for which the, the unit price is the smallest. The, those are the responses that we, we can expect to see mm-hmm. given the EO for that reinforcer. So if we make that manipulation, we go from AO to EO, that we, we can expect to see those responses. And that's what Skinner's talking about with Amanda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Separately, by t- the attacked and these other, other operands, by sufficiently varying the consequences or using generalized reinforcement, we don't give the, the we don't uh, expose um, people to those contingencies. They don't experience, they don't experience the particular response that is the tact, for example, as something that produces the same consequence every time. And therein, when the EO is in place for a particular reinforcer, we get the man to not the tact. Right, the tact sometimes maybe the tact was had results in that consequence, but but it's far more likely that the man does. So if, if you're if you're asking for a glass of water at a restaurant, you get a glass of water, right? And and maybe at one point somebody you're eating dinner with someone and that they brought two cups of glasses of water and they're and you're like, oh, you brought two, and they're like, yeah, do you want one? You're like, I don't know, I guess. You know, so like then you said you got two and it, that ended up with you getting another glass of water. But if you really need a glass of water, you wouldn't, the waiter comes to you and you don't say you got two. That's not what happens, right? Mm-hmm. But you would say, can I have a glass of water? So those, because of the experience with the particular consequences or, or a response that, that we would call a man, that's the thing that gets evoked when there's an EO in place. Whereas attacked, yeah, there's, it has to encounter reinforcement, but the reinforcement is sufficiently varied. And yes, there have to be, those reinforcers have to be reinforcers. They have to be established as such. There must be EOs for them, but there's enough variability in your experiences that that the, the responses that we refer to as tax are not the things that, that are increasing probability when there's some EO in place. The thing that right. increases probability is, is what has been established as a man for that thing via characteristic reinforcement. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm with you. But, but so I'm wondering like this multiple control concept it seems like it's, it's, it, if we're going to not have multiple control, it, it seems like maybe we're talking about something like that, I guess, like a, like a tact that for which we might manipulate a bunch of motivating operations and we see changes in the man repertoire, but we're not seeing changes in the likelihood of tacting. And then, then at least with regard to multiple control being exerted by discriminative stability and motivating operations, maybe that's our demonstration that we're not going to get there. Well, we would, um, we would see multiple control in the mand, yeah. uh, uh, because you would. Um, we we often mand in the presence of an audience. Well, we typically mand in the presence of an audience. In the absence of the audience, we don't. Um, and we are more likely to mand for uh, 
if we're thirsty, we're more likely to demand for iced tea if there's a jug of iced tea on the on the right. table and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. so multiple control still contributes to to man's, even though the the uh, the defining feature of the man is the control by the motivating operation. Right. Yeah. But maybe not, right? Not definitely the tax or intervals, coets, et cetera. Oh, wait, say that again. I, I'm, I'm talking about in terms of the, the, we might not then, if we're talking about multiple controls controlled by both discriminative stimuli and motivating operations, or for Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior, things like tax and echoics and intervals, those would be responses for which we shouldn't be seeing multiple control. Right? We should just oh. be controlled by discriminative Oh, I see what you're saying. So, oh, I'm sorry. So I, I misunderstood. Okay, so so uh, so in the case of the pure tact, uh, the control is uh, exclusive to the um, particular yeah. discrimination. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, uh, we only tact in the presence of an audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Maybe that's not always true. Um, so, in the absence of an audience, is is uh, um, there's a uh, my my glasses are over here on the left, and if 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 I were t- um, signed off now, yeah, would I would sure. I I might tack my glasses over there yeah, on my you glasses. You go around all day just tacting, you know, just like walk yeah. down the street tacting. Right? Yeah, typically yeah. there's an audience. Typically, it's seems like it's often when you're asked a question. So, is it raining outside? And you look mm-hmm. outside. The, the stimuli that are, you encounter by looking outside or controlling your, your response. Yeah. So therein, I, you might, so we might say that you've got multiple control by a discriminative symbols control in that case, right? Yes. But, but not MO control. Right. 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 Okay. So, so we had some additional questions about condition motivating operations. So I, I want to, I want to delve into this, um, the, the concept of, Condition motivating operations, I find to be really useful and helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, like I mentioned earlier, I'm not, it isn't apparent to me that the, the main thesis of this paper, th- that the, the effects of motivating operations are um, propagated through discriminative stimulus control. It isn't, it isn't, and maybe I'm missing something, but it wasn't at least apparent to me that that, that necessitates the um, dismissal of uh, the condition motivating concept. Dave, did you, was, am I missing something there? No, no, I, I, I had the same reaction. It didn't seem to me that that, uh, first of all, I, I don't think it follows. And second, I'm not sure it's true. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I'm fairly, uh, uh, you know, equable about people's theories. If, if, if that's, a, if that's the, the way they want to formulate it, and if they find that useful, then I'm okay with that. But I didn't, I find that the concept of the transitive CEO to be rather intuitive. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't, I didn't see any argument against it that was persuasive to me. Yeah, right. So, so let's, we had some of the students had some questions about what these things are and what they mean. You've got, there, there are three types um, that Jack lays out in this 93 paper. There are surrogate condition. Um, he, he's at the time he's using the establishing operation term as a catch-all, but we, I think we we should uh, he's calling them surrogate condition establishing operations. Um, so this, the surrogate ones, the, this is when some stimulus is 
um, is associated with an existing establishing operation and it comes to then um, exert the, the control that that existing establishing operation does. So that's, that's kind of that idea. So it's sort of like, um, if, imagine there was a child and the, the child's um, mother was dropping him off at daycare. Well, the, the mom comes in and sets the child down and is like chatting a little bit. And then she goes and picks up her keys and starts, you know, heading. Well, when she picks up her keys, that signals her leaving, right? And, and you might see then the child run over and start bidding a lot of attention. Like, you know, that, but that's the, the keys signal a deprivation from attention. And if the keys come to exert the, the same effect that the deprivation from attention does, then that's, that I, I makes sense to me that you're invoking attention maintained behavior. So that's, that's sort of that concept. And then we've got reflexive uh, condition motivating operations. These are ones in which we're, we're, um, we're talking about stimuli for which they're, um, they via their association with an unconditioned um, motivating operation, their, their own um, presence um, is established uh, well, th their own removal is established as reinforcing or punishing. So it's this, in this case, um, the best example I can think of are, are signaling stimuli and signal avoidance preparations. So condition, we talk about these as condition aversive. So wherein that a rat might press a lever and it terminates the uh, tone and it also avoids a shot. So they, if, if that is experienced enough, the mere termination of the tone can come to um, operate as negative reinforcement. So that's the reflexive is sort of like it, it itself it picks up the negative reinforcing properties from the, from the shock. So, and the third is a transitive um, condition motivating operation. And that's, that's this is, um, we, I think we can sort of think about this as a, uh, where um, Michael's block response CEO comes into play. The, 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 in the case of a transitive condition motivating operation, you can imagine um, some circumstance in which a chain of events have to take place. And then once A, B, C, and D have occurred, then there's reinforcement at the end. And when that terminal reinforcer is established as reinforcing, that also establishes as reinforcing all of the stimuli that are necessary to complete A, B, C, and D. So the stimuli that are required, required for the completion of the chain are established as reinforcing and um, if they're absent, then their absence will evoke behavior that has characteristically resulted in their deliverance. So that's, that's sort of, a, and it's sort of transitive in that the, the reinforcement is the EO for the terminal reinforcer establishes it as reinforcing and also all the other steps, the other things that are sort of along the way to, to approaching that terminal reinforcer. So, so this is like if there's reinforcement for the electrician removing the, the panel, and the, that requires a flathead screwdriver, then that evokes asking for a flathead screwdriver. So that, that's sort of like the, the breakdown. So the, in terms of the, the, the authors of this paper really um, dismissed a lot of them. And um, I, the, there was some argument about there, there being at least some misrecalling, not a lot of research on the surrogate ones, right? Uh, and one of the things that's good for us to think about when we when we're reading that is, um, okay, let's do that research, right? Like that's that's a good place to check. So if that if there isn't enough research to support that, then we should we should be looking into it. Uh, and it, even the way that these work, the way that they play out, the 
Jack's paper is talking about Eozolab. Um, and we, we would like to have a uh, parallel, I think, interpretation so that there's an AO version also. But sometimes, you know, it's, um, what, if, if, imagine you're going on a road trip and you're, you're, you stop at a convenience store and there's a sign that says like last stop for the next 200 miles, right? Well, you might stock up on food, you might use the bathroom, like that, that sign is associated with a deprivation from the access to a variety of reinforcers and it might evoke behavior that that, that, that deprivation would evoke. So that, that I think makes sense to me, right? But the other thing I'm not so sure about, like um, if, it, 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 I'm not sure if there's an abolishing operation part of that. Like if, imagine you were interested in eating less. Well, if, if you're hungry, could you just look at an empty plate? You know what I mean? Like, is it like, it, it, would, that, would that act? Like normally when I look at an empty plate, I'm full. So like now when I look at an empty plate, does that make me not hungry anymore? Does it make it such that food is no longer reinforcing? And I think I would say no to that, right? So I'm not, so point being, I think there are some good empirical questions that are, that are in here for us to delve into. The, the, the reflexive, um, the reflexive CEO for me, I think is a challenge to the interpretation that is made in this paper. So the, the, again, if, if we think about the, the fact that the presence of an aversive stimulus can't differentially signal its own removal, can't be differentially associated with its own removal, then I don't, then I don't see how it could be producing behavior in any way other than in acting as an establishing operation. So I, for, for me, that's a challenge to the interpretation that these authors make. And then the, the transitive CEO, I just find that to be tremendously useful. We should, Dave, I want to hear what you, your thoughts about this. This, this idea of um, there being a, a, if we imagine that slotted screw, the, the, the non-EO interpretation would be that the slotted screw is occasioning, it's acting as an SD signaling the availability reinforcement for a whole chain. So for doing all these things. So then you ask your, apprentice and they get the thing and then you take this they get the screwdriver you take the screwdriver you go and screw the panel and then you get the pot of gold or whatever is behind the panel so so the idea is that it occasions the whole chain and and jack lays that out that possibility and the thing that and this is where i want you to chime in Dave. the thing that struck me about that is like in terms of the action of the slotted screws in sd the, the problem with that is that if um depending on what's going on as you are engaging in that chain, there might be different things that have to take place for reinforcement. So if, if your apprentice is there, then you might ask your apprentice. If your apprentice is not there, well then asking, if talking is not going to do anything with regard to the production of the screwdriver. So then you've got, so now this is like bifurcating. And then what if you're, so then, okay, well you turn and you open up your bag of tools, but what if you left your bag in the car? So now turning and doing that is not, so there, it seems to me like that could, segment a million different ways. And, and so therein, I can't see how the singular slotted screw in a unitary fashion is going to occasion some larger unit of behavior. It seems like we, we need a more molecular analysis to, to identify the, the, the causes for that response sequence to separate or differentiate depending on circumstances. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that, Jason. I, in fact, I had the same, uh, reaction to it that um, if it was, if there was a chain of behavior that was well established where 
slotted screws lead to turning to the assistant and then asking the assistant and the assistant gives you the screwdriver and so on. If, if there's an established chain, that's one thing. But if, um, if the screwdriver is now um, an, a, uh, an EO, a conditioned EO, um, then any behavior that brings it about will be uh, reinforced. So, so it doesn't seem to me that there's a chain so much as you say, uh, uh, um, multiple paths to get to that EO will all will presumably all come to strength at the same time. Um, now, if the only thing you've ever done is ask ask your assistant, well, that's going to that that their 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 account works. Dave, something about how you said that it, it struck me. So the we also could use access to any of the stimuli that are necessary for succulent components of the chain as reinforcement for new responses. Yes. So so that. Yes. That also, I think, is a challenge to this interpretation. So, if because we can't, th then you know, what what's the argument there? It must be the case that this has at least been established as reinforcing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Now that, that's 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 an excellent point. Uh, now I don't know that they would um, throw up their arms and say, "My God, these guys are right." Uh, they <laughs> had an they had an alternative interpretation um, that I didn't quite follow um so so it may be that and, and and they said jack acknowledges this alternative interpretation so um i um i had trouble understanding their alternative interpretation um it, but it, it seems just like it's a that it's a like it's a chain like it kicks oh, off okay yeah the, if, if that's what they're saying then, then 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 i did understand it and i didn't and i didn't think that was persuasive but i wasn't sure that they couldn't come up with a an alternative explanation for the other things that yeah. the, the best I can think of is that it's it is it, rather than being a unitary chain, it's a it's a zillion different chains that have been mm -hmm. established, and such that um, if one undergoes extinction, we get the next discriminated operand occasion, et cetera, et cetera. But but what about your example of um, shaping a new behavior using the screwdriver? Yeah, I don't. I I would have to go back and look at the the paper because it's the um, they 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 note that elements of a chain can be reinforcers and they can become reinforcers, conditioned reinforcers, and the assembly can be conditioned reinforcers. And they aren't arguing against the the effect of the consequence. So that being said, I don't. Are, are they just saying we don't need the transitive in there? Like where they seem to, they're definitely on board with conditional reinforcers. Mm -hmm. And so then it's then it, and perhaps they're saying there's not a, there isn't sufficient value in differentiating different ways, operations in which these would come about. Maybe that's where they're going Poss with that. Possibly, I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, Dave, any other thoughts? We're running up on an hour here. Anything else we wanna get to while we're talking about this? Um, well, I, I, th um, I thought the paper was very well written, yep. and I, I I liked the drive toward parsimony that was was behind it. So, um, you know, I I think it was a a valiant uh, and useful effort. I, I and and my own situation is such that I don't uh, I don't I, I found myself not not um, not needing to agree with them. Sure. Um, and 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 thinking I I. I I find the old way of looking at it to be useful yeah. and, and, uh, and I wasn't, 
I wasn't inclined to drop my old way of thinking about it uh, as a result of reading their paper, but I thought it was a, I thought it was a good paper and, and very well written. Thank you again to David Palmer for joining Jason on this episode of the Nick Now Podcast presented by the New England Center for Children. Be sure to check back soon for more episodes. Thanks for listening.